As we come now before the very Word of God, if you have a Bible nearby, if you'd like to read or, or if you would just like to listen, we'll be in the book of Hosea uh, still. This is today in chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. And before we read, <clears throat> would you please pray with me? Our great God, in the words of, of the psalmist, we join and say that our soul melts away for sorrow. Would you strengthen us according to your word? These words are good for us, life for us, and we look uh, to you for strength now in them. Teach us here from your word what is true of you. Help us to see these things and to believe them. Press them apart upon our hearts by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is the book of Hosea. We'll take uh, the entire chapter, or at least uh, almost to the end of it. Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. <clears throat> Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, <clears throat> but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, as though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. <clears throat> now, I have been looking forward to this text for months. 
This is the text in Hosea that I was itching to get to. I, I, I tried uh, not to rush us uh, to get to this point, but it, it's at least for me, if I'm allowed to give a, per, a personal uh, bit here, it's just probably my favorite part of the book. Just a few words in here from it. Because for weeks and weeks now, we have been focused here in Hosea on the people. We've been hearing the Lord's indictment against his people, against Israel, for their sin. And those words have been heavy. Even if we know they're good to hear, that we need to hear them, they're a lot to take in. Now here, for just a moment, we get to turn our attention from the people to the Lord. As we hear God speak about himself in these verses, we catch a glimpse of what we call the attributes of God. The attributes are, are the things that are uh, true of him, his character, his nature, who he is. And there, there are dozens of attributes of God. Uh, they're all, uh, all uh, worthwhile, uh, cons- you know, worthy of our honor and attention and such. But today, or in this text at least, there are two in particular, two attributes that the Lord mentions of himself displayed in the text. We'll take one of those attributes today, and next week we'll take up, Lord willing, take up the other. The two come from verses 8 and 9. I'll just read verse 8, because the attributes that we'll look at are God's compassion and God's anger. Today is God's compassion. It's in verse 8. Let me read it again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is God speaking here. So the big question for us now is, what is this? What exactly is the compassion of God? Uh, Before we begin to unpack it, let me first address a real quick translation bit here. In case you're reading from another Bible translations, we love many translations here, but almost all modern English translations render this Hebrew word as compassion. Most do. A few do not, especially some of the older translations. A few render this word as the Lord's repenting. Not his compassion, but his repentings. Uh, which may be fitting, depending, but it can at least be easily misunderstood and requires a whole lot of explanation. So this Hebrew word here that in my Bible is translated as compassion is primarily an emotional word. The Hebrew word nehum, I hear ya. The Hebrew word nehum comes from the same root word as Nahum, the prophet. And the prophet Nahum's name means comfort. These are feeling words here. So we've got emotions now. 
which is why compassion is probably the best description of what's going on. Now, that said, there's the translation piece. Some people might bristle at the, the thought that God feels. Some people, no problem. Other people might have a, a hard time with that. If you're really versed in the, you know, the, the, the good Westminster Confession of Faith stuff, you might even quote a section if you happen to note it, that God is without parts or passions says the confession, and that, that's true. We need to be careful about how we think and speak about God's emotions. He's not, he doesn't have passions in the sense that he's controlled by his emotions, but it would be wrong to think that God is without emotion at all. You know, some people try to strip God of all of his emotion, even, even some pretty basic central things like the love of God, some people try to take all the emotion out of it, that God's love is just about action, it's just about his choosing of people, and that's true, that's part of his love, but it is much more than that. Love in the scripture is about affection, emotion as well, even as it's applied to God. So we are not inventing these ideas of God ourselves. That would be idolatry for us to do that. We want to listen to God speak, to let him tell us who he is. And these words here in this verse are clearly, clearly heartfelt. When God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? This is not just a mental exercise. Hmm, let me consider the ways I could give you up. Nor is this just some sort of literary device, some rhetorical point he's trying to make. When he says, how can I give you up? <laughs> Sorry, I've been stewing on this all week and it's still in me. That comes from a place where God's very heart recoils, he says. That his compassions are tender. Emotions themselves are not bad. They are not sin to have emotions. God feels ardently, fervently, warmly. So now our question is, what sort of feeling is this? What is compassion? I think it will help us understand this, at least it's helped me, to compare compassion to some of its related ideas. So a couple that are very similar, although not quite the same, are sympathy and empathy. And all three of these things, compassion, sympathy, and empathy, are responses to another person's pain or sorrow. But they're slightly different. So here's the difference, as best I can articulate it. Sympathy is feeling sorrow for your sorrow. Feel sorrow for your sorrow. That's sympathy. Empathy takes that feeling of sorrow and 
adds to it knowledge. Or I suppose it's better to say understanding. That is, I can, I can identify with your experience. I can, I can imagine what that might be like, even if I'm not hurting for the same reasons. I, I can get the feeling, not just from the outside looking in, but from the inside, that I can put myself in your shoes and feel what you feel. That's empathy. Compassion, which is what we're after today, is not just feeling plus knowledge, although there is a measure of knowledge here. Compassion is feeling plus action. Compassion is feeling plus action. That is, it's an emotion that drives us to do something. So let's, uh, let's uh, use an example to show some of the differences. So we've got in the New Testament, Jesus teaching crowds. He's going around everywhere teaching, and, and people are, are coming to him in droves. And in one example, thousands of people have come. They want to stay, but it's been three days now that they've, they've been with Jesus. And by now, they're low on food. They're getting maybe a little hangry. And Jesus uh, looks out at the crowd, and if he had sympathy, he would, he would say, I feel bad that you're hungry. I feel pain. Empathy would say, not just pain, I feel hunger with you. Even if I have eaten, I can identify, I can understand that I feel your hunger as hunger. But compassion says, I feel that pain to the point of which I'm going to do something about it. Which is what Jesus does. We're told, he says, I have compassion on the crowds who are hungry. And so then he looks at his disciples and says, how many loaves we got? How much, how much bread do we got? Got some fish, got some loaves, and this is where he multiplies it over to feed the crowds. His feeling of compassion drives him to do something. And if we were to follow Jesus through the Gospels, we would notice that there are many, many times where his actions are specifically attributed to his compassion. That it's what motivates very often what he does. So there are times where we're told that he has given sight to the blind because he had compassion on him. That he, he cleanses the lepers because he had compassion on them. He heals the sick because he had compassion on them. That he casts out demons even because he had compassion on the one who's afflicted. He even raises the dead of a woman's son because he had compassion on them. And my favorite one, I just have to read this. I can't just cite it off the top of my head. Matthew chapter 9, you'll know this. At the end, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at this bundle of people who are wandering around like shepherdless sheep, and he feels for them. So what then does he do? He calls his disciples and says, I want you to go get them. I'm sending you out like laborers in the harvest. I want you to gather them in so that I will be their good shepherd. 
Jesus does all of these things not just because he's supposed to. He's Jesus, you know? Jesus does that sort of thing. It's not just because he's obligated. This is not just because he's a nice guy who's really helpful and Mr. Rogers kind of stuff. That's just the way it goes. This is all rooted in his compassion. That it's part of his very attribute. It's part of his nature. It's the very fiber of who he is. So here's my best attempt then to define compassion according to the Bible. If you're a note taker, Well, here you go. Here's my best attempt at what compassion is. Compassion is the feeling of being deeply moved to action to alleviate the sorrowful state of another. The feeling of being deeply moved to action to alleviate the sorrowful state of of another. That sorrowful state could be lots of things. Things motivated by sin, circumstances, or what have you. Lots of reasons for sorrowful states. But whatever the source, this makes a deep impact, which is compassion. One of the most striking, at least to me, instances of compassion in the Bible, aside from the compassion, of course, that we see from God, is the compassion that we see from a prostitute. You'll know the story as I start to play this out. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3 if you're interested in reading the whole thing. But but in this scene in the Old Testament, there are actually two prostitutes, housemates. They live together, and both of these ladies... Uh, have a kid, a son, uh, at about the same time. Uh, Kids born just days apart from one another. And in the middle of the night, one of these women experiences every parent's worst nightmare, which is that she rolls over in the middle of the night and smothers her child and wakes up to find her infant son dead. So for whatever reason, out of desperation or what have you, this mother takes her dead child and switches it with the other woman's baby. And so in in the morning, you can imagine then the shock of this other mother. She wakes up uh, to find a dead child next to her, but when she looks closely, she knows this is not not her own, but both of them now are claiming that the living child is theirs, and and they get into this big spat over it that they can't resolve, so eventually their case has to go before the king. And King Solomon hears them each make their plea. You know how this plays out. This is the part that you may recognize. Solomon hears each of their cases. The living boy is mine. The living boy is mine. And Solomon says... Bring a sword. We'll slice the baby down the middle, and each of you can have half. The one woman says, yes, divide the child. You should belong to neither one of us. But the true mother of this child says, no, give her my boy. 
just don't take his life. He's hers. He belongs to her. And Solomon, in his wisdom, of course, sees that she's the true mother and gives the child to her. But in the text, it tells us that the mother did this because her heart yearned for her son. It's the same Hebrew word that we see related to the word for compassion here in Hosea. It's this feeling of deep, deep emotion in response to sorrow that moves us to action. This is a cry out of her very guts. A woman who would be willing to tear out her own heart to save her child. Now, we could take this and talk about how Christians are called to a similar sort of thing. We could. That would be fitting. I mean, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, as God's chosen ones put on compassionate hearts, that we're to be compassionate people. But that's not where I want to take us. Because here in in Hosea, it's not talking about our compassion. It's talking about God's. And so instead of focusing on what this might look like for us, I want us to see what this looks like in God. His heart yearns, recoils with feelings of deep compassion. And if compassion is a feeling that drives to action, then what is it that God does here with this compassion? In the context of Hosea, at least, this action of God from his compassion is not just something he does, it's something he doesn't do. Let me read verse 8 again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, my heart? recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. He says what he won't do, which is to give them up. That he won't hand them over. In other words, he will hold on to them and not abandon them. We know from the rest of the chapter and even the rest of the book that Israel's still going to receive consequences for her sin. Assyria's soon going to carry them off into exile, and that's even going to happen at the hand of the Lord. The sword even will fall upon Israel, which will bring them sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, and yet that will not be the end of them. Because God is compassionate toward them. That he is deeply motivated to also relieve that very sorrow as their father. So throughout the book of Hosea, there's been one dominant image in the relationship between Israel and the Lord. You know it by now if you've been with us for a while. The major metaphor is that Israel is is a whore, in the words of Hosea, is an unfaithful wife to the Lord. And that's still true. That's still the case here. But here in the opening of this chapter, of chapter 11, we get a, a new metaphor, a different image, which is that of not just a husband and wife, 
but of a parent and a child. You might have seen it at the very beginning. Out of Egypt I called my son. You know, I rescued my firstborn Israel. I, I brought her out of Egypt. I loved her with bands of love. But the, the most stirring piece, at least for me, maybe it's a, as a dad or just otherwise, is in verse 3 where he says, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And I took them up by the arms. I'm sure you recognize that image. If you've ever parented, or, or you don't even have to be a parent yourself to know this. You know, when children are learning to walk and you stick your fingers down like this, and they wrap their little chubby hands around your pinky, and they hold on and, and their, their little legs kind of move out. I taught you how to walk and I took you by the arms. It's a very tender picture being given here of God and his people. Now, if that were all it was and it was just left alone, that would be lovely forever after. But we all know that as children grow, they delight our souls and break our hearts. Because we're emotionally invested in them. You know, and sometimes they thrill us, but there are other times where they grow and these children go in ways that we wish they would not go. And they bring sorrow upon their own head, sometimes even by their own sin. But whatever path they take, we know that that child, even if they take the worst of the worst of paths, that child is still mine. That's my kid, the one that I taught to walk. That's what the Lord is saying here. How can I give you up? This is unimaginable to me. Just as true as the day I brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea, just as much as the day I took you by the arms and taught you to walk, you still now belong to me. So even the sight of all of your sin and sorrow and sinking into that stirs now the deepest compassion within me. I want us to listen now. What is true of Israel in relation to God is also true here of every Christian. Because if you have faith in Jesus, by the work of Jesus, you have been adopted into the very family of God. There's a security in there how can I ever give you up sort of thing? And his compassions, imagine this, his compassions grow warm and tender over you. That you stir the very heart of God. That's not a syrupy sentimentalism on a Hallmark card just designed to make you feel good. This is, this is true of him, rooted in his very nature. And if a prostitute's heart yearns to save her son, how much more will the Almighty Father be moved to save his children? You know, our, our God keeps every drop of our tears in a bottle. 
His compassions are warmed with the force of a thousand suns. If we were to take all the host of the angels of heaven and pull together all of their compassions, that would be but a whisper for the level of compassion that our Almighty Father feels over even one, one of his children. That's true of you. So listen to me, child God, put away your fear. Put away your doubt. The Lord not only feels this for you, he acts on your behalf to remedy your sorrowful state. That would be a good place to end, but I have one last thing to say especially since we are about to receive and partake in the Lord's communion together. The last thing we need to know about God's compassion is how this relates to sin. Okay? So Jesus teaches several parables involving compassion. You know, one of the most glaring ones is, is the Good Samaritan, how he has compassion on the man who's beaten up. But we want to look at the place where uh, Jesus teaches the prodigal, or the, the parable of the prodigal son. I won't tell the whole story. You know the bulk of it. You, the, the gist is that this son uh, gets into a bit of a mess of life, similar to Israel, similar to uh, us. Uh, there's sin and selfishness and squandered life. And so the son uh, goes off and does his own thing, but then light bulb comes on, bing, I need to go back home. And so the son decides he's going to head back. But on the path home, the son is rehearsing what he's going to say to his dad when he sees him. He says, Dad, this is all in his mind, Dad, Dad, I've done wrong. I, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son, but would you receive me as your servant? And you can imagine this going through his mind over and over as he's walking the long way home, anxious about how his father's going to re respond, rolling the words over and over in his head, you know, just feeling that kind of pit in his stomach. And when he gets near enough home, but when this son is still a long way off, he doesn't even get to say a word of his speech. At least not at first. He doesn't even get a word in because when he's still at a far off distance, we're told in the text the father saw him, had compassion on him, and ran and embraced him. It's the father's compassion that drives him to act. That's what turns the son's sorrowful state into a day of celebration and singing and dancing and all of that. Here's what I want us to get from this. We can see from this that restoration is not mainly built on the son's level of repentance. It's built on the level of the father's compassion. It is not built on the level of the son's repentance, but on the level of the father's compassion. I want you to keep this in mind. 
especially as we receive the Lord's Supper together. Because this is not mainly a time when we look at ourselves and wonder whether our repentance is good enough, big enough, holy enough to come before God. This is a time for us to look at the very heart of God. And we would see his compassions in their fullness, see Jesus who gave his own life for us, who who asks, how can I ever, ever, ever give you up? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, how, huh, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, and yet that's true of us. Help us in this time to abide in, to soak in your compassions. By these things, would you stir in us a greater love for you, a a greater desire for holiness, and and a profound rest in you. By your compassion, guide us to praise you, for you are worthy of praise. This we ask in, in Jesus' name. Amen.